This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think the truthful word is so rare, and if by gospel we mean good news, anyone being candid and honest and not manipulative with their honest word, that that is is good news for God's kingdom. It's good news for all morally serious people. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is David Dark. He's Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of several books, including The Gospel According to America, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, and Everyday Apocalypse. His work has appeared in Pitchfork, Paste, and America Magazine. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. David Dark, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So I've asked you to begin by reading a passage from your book, The Possibility of America. Okay. Starting from Weirded Out Nashville, where I was born, I was taught, like Ahab, Starbuck, and perhaps every American president, to view myself in some sense as an eternal soul, haunted by the thought of what this might mean and alarmed at how cavalier most of my comrades were on the subject of eternity, I mostly associated this preoccupation with church services and that black Bible I figured I'd better read all the way through before it was too late. I don't regret my early childhood preoccupation with eternity in any way, But I know I was often tempted to view any and all life that didn't line up with my thoughts of eternity as tragically irrelevant to everything that really mattered, because all that mattered, wasn't it obvious, was eternity. To the extent that I began to view my passion for eternity as somehow nearer to the appropriate level of intensity than the passion levels of my peers, I suppose I fit the description of what is often termed a fundamentalist. But I don't think this habit of mind and imagination is limited to those who consider themselves religious, since demonizing the opposition appears to be what many of us fall into whenever we don't know what to do with our despair. To my thinking, it was with the presumed backing of the eternal that I passed reluctant judgment on all the interesting worldly things that, as far as I could tell, had no inheritance in the infinite. My enjoyment of the not eternally significant day-to-day was made only a little bit guilty by my suspicion that it was all going to burn. I had yet to view the Lord's Prayer as a calling of God's kingdom on earth, 
and I probably viewed heaven as a little more like a netherworld or a phantom zone. This sad doctrine of unincarnate faith, mostly constructed in my own mind, began to be challenged in a high school English class when I turned in my literature book to a section called Transcendentalism and thought, that's more like it. What a word, transcendentalist, and what a thing to be. The whole thing seemed remarkably and scandalously grounded. Could I really have it both ways, heaven and earth? Walt Whitman seemed to think so. The soul, forever and forever, longer than soil is brown and solid, longer than water ebbs and flows. And even better, I say the whole earth and all the stars in the sky are for religion's sake. Here was a poetry of new potentialities and an affirmation of what I'd begun to glimpse in the paintings of Howard Finster, what I'd already seen in particular episodes of The Twilight Zone, and what I thought I was hearing in the music of Suzanne Vega, Lone Justice, and R.E.M., a uniquely American mysticism I was tempted to call country music, comprehensive and curious, but confident at nobody's expense. What does this have to do with the national psyche? And that's our guest, David Dark, reading from his book, The Possibility of America. So I wanted you to start with that passage because to me, this helps to encapsulate for my listeners and for your readers kind of what your ethos is. You come from a fundamentalist background, as you say, a very conservative background, and yet the orbit of your thought carries with it not only that fundamentalist evangelical approach to scripture and to life, but then an encompassment that looks at, I would say, all of culture and really begins to mm. pull it in and churn it through a gospel lens and bringing, brings it back out again in a new form with a new perspective. And just two pieces of that. One, farther down that page, you talk about Walt Whitman describing a single blade of grass as the journey work of the stars. And as I was reading your book, another thing came to mind, and that's a, from a spoken word album by John Cage from many years ago, where he quotes a Gnostic writer who says, split the stick and there is Jesus. I'm really appreciative of the vast comprehensiveness of your approach. And so first of all, I just want to thank you for that and say, how is it that you are able to find a connection to the gospel in all of these things, including Suzanne Vega, including Walt Whitman, including all of this? Well, thank you. I think there, there was the worry that I suppose I articulate in that passage that nothing matters <laughs> in view of eternity. And that was an anxiety for me. I wouldn't blame my parents for it or any one particular Sunday school teacher or youth minister, but I did pick up somewhere in there the suggestion that we are all just souls in earth suits, and we just have to wait. We have to believe the right things, and then we go to heaven. And I don't know who I'm quoting when I say this, but the idea that earth itself is a disposable ladder to heaven, a kind of waiting room. I heard that, I was told that, and I didn't like it at all, because I love science fiction and film and popular music. And so I suppose 
much of what I write is an attempt to argue against that kind of, in the name of God, nihilism attitude toward culture. And, yeah, I've fought for that in my own heart throughout my life and my love of comic books and, as you put it, just a whole of culture. And I think I also was taught to read widely and was also taught that there was no beautiful or true thing that was somehow a threat to God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, and that any truthful word, even a difficult one, even if it makes that which passes for church look bad, is on the side of God's good news. So I I think I, I grow more and more convinced of that, and I sort of carry it into everything I'll I do. I, I note that early on, in my one of my earliest instances of doing that, and somebody wanting to publish me was The Simpsons, and people found my take on The Simpsons convincing. But even then, there were those who wanted to say, "Oh, I see, you're using The Simpsons to tell people about the gospel." And I want to please people, but I had to say no to that. That I'm not merely using thinking of The Simpsons as a kind of ministry tool. I think The Simpsons, like Shakespeare, like Joni Mitchell, is gospel insofar as it's truthful, beautiful human expression. So that's kind of my starting point, and I kind of keep writing the same book over and over again. (laughs) You mentioned just now what I found to be a, a fascinating theme throughout your book, The Possibility of America, and that is this tension between the kind of, you use the phrase, earth suit, this eternal yeah. notion that we're, we're just biding time until the real kingdom comes, versus mm. almost a, a divine impregnation of everyday things. And, and it, it seems yeah. like you have really thrown your lot in with the latter of those, that the notion that mm. we can find the divine in the everyday in a multitude of ways that are useful and they're not simply doing lip service. You mentioned The Simpsons just a moment ago and and how you're not just using The Simpsons as a vehicle to teach the gospel, but to the extent that there's truth in The Simpsons, if I've heard you correctly, The Simpsons themselves can can be gospel. First of all, have I heard that correctly? Yes, you have. Yeah. I think the truthful word is so rare, and if by gospel we mean good news, anyone being candid and honest and not manipulative with their honest word that that is, that is good news for God's kingdom. It's good news for all morally serious people. And it is already there. It's not, I find the connection, or I'm making divinity appear. It just awaits our recognition. And I think that the work of, of good prose, of poetry, good cultural analysis is, is recognizing what's already there and amplifying it. And so, as we are moving into this conversation, I just want to make sure that our listeners are alerted 
to the fact that we are going to be digging deep into these cultural questions in a way that uh, may at sometimes uh, seem surprising, but I hope will be enlightening throughout. And just uh, on that note, we're, yeah, we're speaking today with David Dark. He's the author of the recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark. He's Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. We're talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America, or How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. Well, as I was reading your book, The Possibility of America, another memory of mine came to mind, and that was a 1973 interview with David Bowie. And he's talking to Russell. He's talking to Russell Hardy on the BBC, and Hardy asks David Bowie, "Do you believe in God?" And Bowie says, mm, "I'd really prefer not to put a persona to it, but I do believe in something." And Hardy asks him what he believes in, and Bowie responds, "I love life very much indeed, and that's what I believe in. I believe in life." And so I put that out there for us to maybe do a little bit of analysis and to look at Bowie's statement, because Bowie was very good at doing something that I think you're trying to do in this book. And that is, Mm -hmm. in one sense, Bowie seems like it's all about Bowie, but he's constantly throwing his own self under the bus in favor of something theatrical, something performative. And to what, to what extent, when we are thinking about our role as Christians in America, are we trying to do that same thing? To what extent, for the purpose of loving life indeed, as Bowie says, are we called to sort of throw ourselves away from ourselves into something that we're supposed to perform, and what would that performance be? That's fantastic. I don't think that we're called—I think we are called to be witnesses— to um, God's love of the world. And we're called, if we think of ourselves as Christians, we're called to be student followers of the teachings of Jesus. Having put that down, I would say that we are not called to try to be good advertisements for Christianity or that which passes for Christianity. We're called to hold our own anxieties and hopes and whatever wisdom we've picked up out with open hands. But I don't think we're called to pretend. We're certainly not called to lie. And we're not called to talk people into our view of the world, it seems to me. I love Bowie's way of dodging the question in an almost conscientious way of not wanting to um, collapse the mystery of God into one particular formulation, but to go with love of life, which is 
I don't want to say that it's it's enough, but something that I feel like I learned certainly from Bowie, but maybe more explicitly the band U2, is that we're called to love God and the world simultaneously. But we're not loving God much if we don't love the world a lot. Our I like to say that our love of God can only really be known by our love for people. And of course, Scripture tells us that if we say we love God, but we hate our sister or brother, we lie, and the truth is not in us. So I think that we're called to be part of a living process of deep affection, self-care, love of self, love of others, and receive the, the witness of others in terms of how we're doing, rather than being defensive about who believes what. Wow. I want to pick up on two things that you just said in that answer and ask you a, a, a follow-on question. One, you, you said that we are not supposed to be good advertisements for Christianity, that that's not what we're called to do, and that we really, we really do see our, our Christianness in our love of neighbor. And I want to read both of those statements through somebody that you talk about at length in your book, and that is the Southern preacher Will Campbell and the radical love that he had for others that sometimes infuriated his fellow social progressives, because he would be so yeah. radically loving that he would, in fact, embrace people that I'm scare-quoting now that you're not supposed to love. So talk to me about Will Campbell. Mm-hmm. Tell the listeners who may not know who Will Campbell is, who Will Campbell was, and then let's get into this a little bit. Fantastic. Well, look him up, everyone. In a better world, his books would be available at Cracker Barrel. He would be in the pantheon of country music icons. He was a singer himself, but also a Baptist minister, very good friends with Chris Christopherson, appeared in a Johnny Cash video, and he was very close to Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Merton, and Walker Percy. So he is that guy who very unfamously lived his life in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, and was almost, I, I mean this respectfully, almost like a Forrest Gump figure in the civil rights era, which of course is still going on. But he would have been a man who walked with the Little Rock Nine into the school in Little Rock, Arkansas, to begin desegregation. A white man, I should say, who risked his own life because he wanted to protect the children who he was worried were going to be taken out by a sharpshooter or something. And he was one of the few Baptist Southern ministers of the era who worked very closely with Dr. King. He did get into trouble because he would not, his ministry to all types of people included ministry to imprisoned Klansmen and everyone from every aspect of life. He, he viewed redneck as a kind of slur that perpetuates accusation, demonization of people. And he was very unpopular in some circles in the freedom struggle for insisting that the poor white Southerner is also a child of God, is also an estranged figure within the time. And like Congressman John Lewis, who knew him well, he wanted to privilege the concept of beloved community in all interaction, even with outraged white Southerners who were threatening 
and carrying out violence against nonviolent protesters. So Campbell would have died maybe um, four or five years ago, little known, but I knew him, and we had some really great back and forth, and he really, I don't know how to roll this into it, but I'll mention that I spend some time teaching in the uh, prison system. I had a number of students in the incarcerated community, and Campbell, it was pretty much through Campbell and kind of his group in Nashville that I found my way into that type of work. And he was really big on prioritizing the souls of prison administration and prison guards and everyone who's caught up in mechanisms of violence, as well as the victims of those violence, which makes him a really rare bird who I hope will become more famous in the next hundred years or so. This was what fascinated me about your book, The Possibility of America, because I'm turning a page, and on one page I'm reading a story about Bayard Rustin, who has such an elevated sense of hospitality and an elevated sense of God within his enemy that he's able to stand with dignity as he's being beaten and and Jim Lawson when he's being spit upon. But then I, I, I turn the page, and I'm reading this about Will Campbell, and I'm like, Will Campbell's saying statements like, I'm for the Klansman because I'm for humanity. That doesn't mean that he's for the Klan. It means that he's for the humanity of the Klansman. But there's a part of me that recoiled. And I realized that this this was the essence of what you were saying. We're not supposed to be good advertisements for Christianity because this is the very scandal of loving your enemy that Jesus talked about, isn't it? It is, and and it is always a scandal, and it is always a hard pill to swallow, but it is the core of anything that we could rightly call evangelical Christianity. I think of evangelical as omnipartisan good news bringer. And if you aren't interested in extending the love of God even to the enemy, even the the fill-in-the-blank, the last person you want to see happy or making money or winning an election, you're not actually evangelical. And Campbell, to me, it is a hot-button word, but like Daniel Berrigan, he represents that. Like James Lawson, he represents that. And James Lawson, I want to mention really quick, I once heard him in a class say, I differ with, with Gandhi, who said, I have no enemies. I do have enemies. And he defined the enemy as someone who is almost psychologically engineered to threaten their own well-being and the well-being of others, a toxic person. And he said, I do have enemies, but Jesus calls me to love my enemy. So it's that inexhaustible hospitality, a kind of infinite hospitality, that I think is the work of anyone who means to follow the teachings of Jesus and the prophets. And Campbell is kind of my standard, because his unsuccess, his unpopularity as a figure is... it sometimes feels like it's the price of admission for being a, a morally serious person. So you have, you've interacted with Campbell, you've interacted with Lawson, you've, you've studied the lives of people like Dorothy Day and Daniel Berrigan and Bayard Rustin. Mm-hmm. As we're moving towards our second break, I just want to ask you a question. As you've been studying the lives of these who have this kind of elevated sense of hospitality, this elevated sense of love of neighbor, even to love of enemy, what have you seen in terms of their their practices of self-care? 
what have they done to make sure that they are caring for themselves and caring for others around them? Because I think sometimes we can get lost in the idea that this is a simple selfless act where we have to completely negate ourselves. But my, my sense is that that's not what you've observed. I think surrounding yourself with people who are going to call you out on your own delusions to know. I mean, I'm having grown up in a fundamentalist-ish thing. I did not love your neighbor as yourself. The as yourself part was completely lost. I I did have that thing of I'm being selfish if I think about myself at all, which just sends me down this denial shame spiral. I, I think the work is finding folks who are are going to let you know when you're behaving in a self-destructive way and who, who can call us with good humor, love, and genuine compassion out of our agitation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark. We're talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with David Dark. Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University. We're talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. Well, on social media and in your book, The Possibility of America, both, you make a move that I want to ask you about. You rehabilitate and reclaim the term antichrist. And I would like to talk about that with you for a few minutes. When you use this term, when you deploy the term antichrist, I think that maybe some of my listeners on the evangelical station where we broadcast will hear that in a particular way. I want to make sure that it's clear how you mean it. What do you mean, David Dark, when you use this term antichrist? Yes. Okay. Well, this is a really good question that I will answer, and I also want to say that that I welcome any input you might have in how to deploy it more faithfully. I do think of Antichrist not not as a person ever, but as a spirit that gets hold of people, a deluding spirit, a, a wicked spirit that is particularly prone we might say, to confuse, hmm, okay, well, here's the way of putting it, that a person possessed by the spirit of Antichrist or a community possessed by a spirit of Antichrist is peculiarly prone to confuse the voice of God for the voice in one's head. That's a challenge that we all have, incidentally, a struggle that exists among all God-talkers or people who presume or hope to be informed by the Spirit of God, but I view Antichrist as a term that Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer both deployed to describe what was happening among self-described Christians in Nazi Germany who were confusing their devotion to Jesus for their devotion to Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich. Similarly, Archbishop Desmond Tutu during the apartheid era in South Africa, used Antichrist again to describe 
the church, the predominantly, well, completely white churches that believed that they were following the dictates of the Bible or God's will when they um, forbade interracial marriage or declined to give full membership to uh, Jesus followers of color. In both of those instances, people feel really strongly that they're doing God's will, that they are as wrong as can be. So again, no one person is Antichrist, in my view, but it is a spirit that mistakes itself for Christianity. And I think there are times in history when it is appropriate to deploy it, not to demonize, but to name the situation of what's happening among people who think of themselves as Christians but are possessed by a spirit, for instance, of um, white nationalism. So in your chapter in your book, The Possibility of America, the chapter that concludes the book, God Remembers Everything Violence Forgets, you talk explicitly about this notion of Antichrist, and in our current moment, you ally it with you, you ally it with the idea of groupthink, a term that sort of means yeah. that, that we lose ourselves in, in a conversation that is non-reflective. But help me understand and help my listeners understand what groupthink is in this, in this present moment. Yes, groupthink is a, um, well, it was deployed in the um, 9-11 Commission report as to what got hold of our governing agencies, what happened in the intelligence community, that we were so blind to the threat. But I also, the threat of the, what is now known as the 9-11 attacks, but it's also kind of a natural thing of the authoritarian personality, not the authoritarian personality is Adolf Hitler, but the authoritarian personality is the personality that would rather know what to believe and say in order to be safe, rather than what to believe and know in order to be truthful. So groupthink gets hold of us whenever we're, just tell me what to believe. (laughs) Tell me what I have to say I believe in order to get the job to not be persecuted to not experience resistance. So groupthink is also something that happens when we're just trying to avoid conflict. I think it's natural to want to avoid conflict, but if we're bowing or pledging allegiance or playing along with whatever everybody's doing just to get by, we aren't exactly lovers of truth at that point, and we certainly aren't followers of Jesus. We're just Nobody's just anything, but we are just playing along when we do that. So groupthink sets in whenever one particular version of the world is, or people, or bodies, or any of it, is kind of enforced by a soft peer pressure, and we eventually get to the point that we don't even ask ourselves if we really believe what everyone else in the group is saying, because it becomes too painful a prospect. It might mean losing what cozy relationship we have with family members or people in power or an employer. So, But what I'm trying to argue is to be truly American, to be genuinely committed to the experiment of representative democracy that our country, at least on paper, is supposed to go for, is to kind of wage war within yourself, to wage war against the ease of groupthink and to want to know what you don't want to know, to want to know what's true more than you want to feel successful 
or win or be strong. I think that is the job, not just for folks who are operating in this system, but obviously people who want to think of themselves as followers of Jesus. And that's so fascinating to me. So in talking about groupthink, you talk about a group of people who have a particular relationship to an authority figure or to an authoritative voice or pronouncement. But in your book, The Possibility of America, you also talk about the other side of that, and that is the one who holds authority. And there's a quotation from your book that I just want to bring to the conversation. So you talk about those whose power depends upon lethal force. And so you, the groupthink people, the, those who are possessed within the mindset, the idolatry of groupthink, they want to avoid conflict with the authority figure, but the authority figure is also willing to use conflict to maintain a, a certain type of non-truth order. And what's so yeah. what's so important in your analysis to me is that you you then bring against this groupthink authority you bring the idea of resurrection. And and your quote yeah. is, resurrection is bad news for anyone whose power depends on lethal force. And resurrection, oh my gosh, yes. resurrection there, you, you, you ally resurrection with what you've been talking about throughout our conversation, this idea of truth. So help me understand the connection yes. of resurrection to truth. Okay, thank you. Well, I want to quickly note that it isn't just a New Testament thing. It is all the way back to Cain and Abel, and the suggestion that once Abel is out of the way, buried, disappeared, taken care of, that Cain's anxiety, Cain's jealousy, Cain's sense of incapacity that he felt in Abel's presence, the idea that he could take care of that by killing Abel, no, and the mantra, the word that God brings in his relationship to Cain is his blood still cries from the ground. And, of course, we have, even before Jesus, we have this idea that the stone the builders reject becomes the chief cornerstone. We even have many a prophet throughout Scripture, but there are false prophets who say whatever power asks, tells those who bear lethal force have plenty of people around them telling them that God is on their side and is good with what they're doing. But then we have the true prophets who are always on the wrong side of lethal force, and they may be imprisoned or killed, but in the biblical canon, their voice is lifted up, and their word is eternal in a way that the word of false assurance is lost to history. So with Jesus, we have the one who was the power of lethal force was brought against him. There were justifications for it. There were, let's keep the peace. It's necessary that one man die, all of that kind of thing. But if we believe in resurrection, we know that death never has the last word and that we get to act like it. So whether we're talking about indigenous people or people who have been on the wrong side of our own country's firepower, the suggestion that they have now been silenced and we don't have to worry about their version of events is actually a very anti, completely non-biblical way of reading history. We know that we are answerable. And it is something of a, I am attempting something of a summation of the biblical witness by asserting that God remembers everything violence forgets, that the dead come back to tell a tale, 
and even in our interpersonal relationships, if I'm tempted to um, tear somebody up verbally because they hurt me or I felt hurt by them, the challenge I try to give myself and others is that we're always called to remember people rather than dismember them. And whether it's a split or a you know, we leave a job or whatever it might be, I think that God is the one that always remembers in a dismembering world. And we get to do that even in our social media exchanges. If we ever fall into that act of dismembering people in order to feel better about our own positions, we're kind of doing Satan's work for Satan in a way. So yeah, resurrection, this belief that it's all coming back around, everything will be revealed, everything will be made known. There are no state secrets that aren't open to God. And if we act like people who really believe that ultimately nothing is hidden, a pretty righteous neighborliness, a pretty righteous politics will will follow. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark, Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. We're discussing his recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Dark, Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. We're talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. Well, towards the end of your book, The Possibility of America, you tell an anecdote about Reverend James Lawson and a moment when he's in the civil rights era, he's confronted by a man who spits on him, and Lawson then asks, asks the man for his handkerchief, wipes his face, notices that the man was riding a motorcycle, starts talking to him about motorcycles, and by the end of the conversation has basically converted the man to being on Lawson's side. And yes. in this exchange, you asked him, you say in the book, how one might develop the ha- the habit of handling people so beautifully, and Lawson's response was, you have to keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. Now, mm-hmm. as our conversation comes to uh, a close, I want to begin to interrogate this notion of, of infinite possibility because there's two ways that we might hear this. 
and you deal with both of these possibilities in your book, The Possibility of America. One, one branch is the branch of fabulism, of lying, where infinite possibility yeah. means I can tell you any story and it's dislodged from the truth and it never has to be connected to the truth. And you want to caution us against that branch and push us instead to what I would call, using a phrase developed by Walter Brueggemann, a notion of prophetic imagination. And so in this range of infinite possibility, how do we discern the prophetic imagination that is not a lie from the fabulous tale spinning that is a lie? And how do we hew to the one and not the other? Well, that's, that's a great, great question. I want to be on the side of prophetic imagination rather than fabulism, but I do want to share a funny little anecdote sort of on the side of fabulism. In um, No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee Jones's sheriff character has tells stories, and they're pretty outlandish. And one character says, is that a true story? To which Tommy Lee Jones says, it's true that it's a story, and then he just keeps talking. And I thought that was really, really funny. So I, I want to give a slight thumbs up to fabulism. Parables, certainly. Fiction. But prophetic imagination, grounded in reality and honesty, always has what's happening and what really happened as its primary reference. And if I can try to tie that into imagery of infinite possibility, I think that Lawson, of course, told the group that he was addressing when I asked him that question, that the idea of doing that unexpected thing of asking for the handkerchief, of asking about the motorcycle when the person is an aggressor, is to know that within yourself, you always have the ability to be, to have your best self stick out instead of reacting, responding rather than reacting. And the response, if it's going to be a genuinely prophetic response, is going to have the um, welfare of the aggressor in mind at every turn, where you honestly believe, as Dr. King taught us, that the image of God in another person is never totally gone, no matter how violently or hatefully they're responding to you. The job is to um, help them to encounter the other person as a person and to invite them to enter into a kind of mutual personhood whether through good humor or um, remarking upon, you know, a tree or a car or something like that. There's this insight, and I do think this is a prophetic imagination insight, that everybody ultimately craves reality. We, we do live in denial, but I think that we all want, on some level, the truth about ourselves, and it comes out in what's sometimes called a Freudian slip, or it even comes out, as C.S. Lewis reminds us, when we start noting the sins of people, and they are the very sins that we ourselves are, are in denial about. I think, too, of the saying that a toxic personality is a traumatized personality, and to view the trauma as something that is common to us, rather than othering people and viewing the trauma as a kind of systemic evil afoot that we mustn't ever mistake for any one person. 
So as we look out our window and see, and this is the phrase that you use, this military-industrial-incarceration-entertainment complex, when you look out your window and you look at America in the thrall of this principality, this power, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Hmm. I hope that I am a, a practitioner of hopeful realism. I, I tend to think that history comes in waves. And it can feel almost as if we're undergoing an exorcism because we would not have had, hmm, if, if we think of it in terms of white supremacist spirit, it's as if an awful lot that was buried or mostly functioning on the level of insinuation has now risen to the top, is kind of out in daylight. And I... I think we are waking up from something of a, a dream in a way. And I mean, the idea that our government could get away with, and of course the government operates on our presumed consent, could get away with caging children and separating families long before the latest administration. It, it was going on, but now it has risen to the top. And, and that helps me to be optimistic because we, we do become what we normalize, but we can't know how morally strange we've become until it makes it into the newsfeed. And somehow in the last two years, a lot of what we've been up to all along with our tax paid for policies is now revealed. Of course, apocalypse means revelation. So maybe we could say we're living in apocalyptic times, but it, it can be an opportunity, too, to reckon with ourselves more honestly about what we're paying for and voting for and taking responsibility for all of these perverse liturgies that we fund with our consent and our tax dollars. Well, David Dark, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and I will just say to my listeners I was reading The Possibility of America, and every page as I turned it, you were showing things to me that I knew well from culture, from film, from music, from, from literature, and you were showing them to me in a new way. And I, I loved it so much. I really, really appreciate the book, and I appreciate especially your taking time to talk to us about it today. Thank you. I thank you, and, and I'm a fan of yours and a fan of what you do, and I thank you for expanding the space of the talkaboutable where you are with this broadcast. We've been speaking today with David Dark. He's Assistant Professor of Religion and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of several books, including The Gospel According to America, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, and Everyday Apocalypse. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The Possibility of America, How the Gospel Can Mend Our God-Blessed, God-Forsaken Land. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijif. Our show was made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.